The season of Advent is a season of preparation. It is the four weeks leading up to Christmas in which we anticipate the coming of the Messiah. Now we recognize and talk about in our shared life that God did come among us in a very certain place, in a very certain time, in a very certain way, in Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. And knowing that Christ came in our midst and spoke to us that he would come again, we now then anticipate what that might look like. Reading the Hebrew prophets who speak of the kingdom of God and the reign of God, as well as Jesus' words, we start to look for what Jesus coming again might look like. Now, I don't know about you, but several years ago, it occurred to me that everyone wasn't flocking to the manger when Jesus arrived. There were a handful of people. A shepherd, three wise men, some maybe neighbors nearby who just came because they heard that the baby was born. But most people were going about their daily life and work when the Messiah arrived on the scene. And I dare say, I'm pretty certain I would have been one of those going about my daily routine. So it makes me consider, would I even recognize if Christ came again? Our gospel lesson today, Jesus is speaking about what will happen when he comes again. The Son of Man descending in the clouds. That the vision of all of this will be overwhelming and that people will faint from fear and foreboding of what they see. Jesus goes on to say, when you see this, stand up because your redemption has come near. I wonder if the reason that Jesus gives this explicit instruction to stand up is because usually when fear and foreboding happen to us, Standing up is not what we do. Fear makes us crumble sometimes, paralyzed, or maybe fleeing in response to fear. So Jesus is giving some particular instruction. He's letting the disciples and us know what to expect so that we can recognize it when it comes. And so then that comes back to us again. How do we prepare for the recognition? What is it we can do here, now, that makes us ready for Christ's return? The scriptures give us many examples and invitations to consider that question. I was looking again at the story of the Exodus, and that is such an amazing and powerful story. If you haven't read it in a while, I commend it to you again. And the best thing about the story of the Exodus is it's in the book of Exodus, so it's easy to find. Starting in chapter 6 is when Moses goes to Pharaoh and talks to him about letting the slave people go, the Hebrew people. Now, if you remember, Egypt has gotten rich on the backs of their slave labor. That's how it's all worked. So, of course, Pharaoh isn't eager to let the people go out and pray in the desert, which is what Moses asks for. And just prior to chapter 6, you hear the um, Hebrew people go before Pharaoh lamenting that they're expected to make a certain number of bricks, but they aren't going to be given any more straw. So they're set up for failure. That's when Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, 
let God's people go. And over the course of a week, things happen in Egypt. And they're meant to wear Pharaoh down so that he wishes the Hebrew people would go. Even getting to the point of the death of the firstborn of everything. That's the last plague. The death of the firstborn of the Pharaoh, of the peasant, of every animal. This is so that the Egyptians will stand back and wish the Hebrew people away. They are given specific instructions, the Israelites, for how they are to prepare for their exodus. And in the 12th chapter, we read of what they're supposed to eat and how they're supposed to eat it. Moses tells the people, This is how you shall eat it. Your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you should eat it hurriedly. It is the Passover of the Lord. They're given explicit instructions of how to eat their food. They have their coat on, if you will. Their shoes are tied. They have what they need for the journey. It's as if they have one foot out the door even while they're eating. Because there's not going to be time to put on your sandals. There's not going to be time to grab your staff for the indefinite journey. Be ready. I learned from someone um, who is a volunteer fireman of how long it takes for a house fire to become out of control. And what made me think of this is the things that we prepare for when we prepare for unexpected situations. Remember when you were a kid, there were several drills you did at school, and by generation you can tell, or you can tell which generation people are in by the drills they did at school, right? For the unforeseeable horror that could happen. But one thing that's remained constant is a fire drill. Everybody needs to get out of the building as fast as they possibly can. And we practice this because when a fire happens and we become aware of it, we probably won't know what to do. So we want to set our body on automatic response. And this was made uh, stuck in my head very vividly when a volunteer fireman told me how long it takes for a house fire to get out of control. Does anyone want to take a guess of how long it takes for a house fire to become out of control? What are some times? Five minutes? What was over here? I heard somebody over here. Two minutes? Any other guesses? It takes four minutes. Four minutes for a house fire to become out of control. So no wonder they tell us to get out, to go, don't go in and get something. Because in all likelihood, by the time you become aware that your house is on fire, it's already a minute or two into that four-minute window. I remember as a kid, my mom had a steamer trunk in the front entryway of our house with our baby albums in it and some family photos and things. And she said, that's what I'm going to tell the firemen to pull out the front door. Don't grab anything. Anything we want is in there. So how are we prepared for what we can't prepare for. Jesus invites us to consider that. And we need to consider that in order to know that we know how to respond. There are other pieces in Scripture who rem- that remind us of this as well. 
In Luke's gospel, at the very end, as Jesus has finished praying on the Mount of Olives, the night before he is betrayed and handed over to first the high priest and then to Pilate, Jesus is on the Mount of Olives praying with his disciples, Peter, James, and John, when the Roman soldiers arrive. And they come to him ready for a fight, if you remember in that story. And Peter, who is with Jesus among the three that had been praying with him all night, although Peter, James, and John did fall asleep, responds as only he knows how to do in a situation like this. He pulls his sword. Do you remember that? And he cuts off the ear of the high priest. Because that's what you do when this kind of thing is starting to happen. And if you recall, as we read in Luke's gospel, Jesus says, no, that's not how we're going to do this. And he heals the man's ear that has just been cut off. Now, my friends, Peter was a disciple. He rubbed shoulders, elbows with Jesus. They were aware of when the other one hadn't had a shower in a few days. That's how well they knew each other. They ate at the same table. So if Peter isn't sure what to do in this uncertain situation... If he goes into his habit of pulling the sword, I think, wouldn't I do the same? I'd like to think that I'll stand up and say, look, here he comes. But I don't know why I think I'd be any different. We are invited during this season of Advent to prepare, to do practices that help us become attentive in our ears and in our eyes and in our heart to what God is doing in the world. The beautiful thing of practices, spiritual practices, is that they work on us. And they transform us, even as we're just doing them. The Abrahamic faiths, the three Abrahamic faiths, share seven spiritual practices. The Abrahamic faiths are Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. All of them trace their family tree back to Abraham. You'll hear in the Eucharistic prayer that we'll remember Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. Sarah is the mother of Isaac, and it's from that line from which Jesus arrives. Hagar is the mother of Ishmael, and it's from that line that Islam is descended. So the three Abrahamic faiths share seven spiritual practices that shape us in a life of prayer. All of us have a holy meal, a sacred meal that we come together and remember the provision of God. All of us have opportunities to pray several times a day in the rhythm of the daily routine. All of us have seasons of worship that tell our salvation story, as we are doing right now. But you think about Judaism and with Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, and you think about Islam with uh, Ramadan. All of us have seasons that tell our salvation story. All of us have the practice of caring for the poor and the vulnerable. All of us have the practice of pilgrimage, visiting the holy sites where the faithful have gone before to feel and remember the faith that has been passed on to us. All of us have the commitment to keeping Sabbath. The Muslims on Friday, the Jews on Saturday, the Christians on Sunday. That's one of the reasons it's complicated in Israel and the West Bank. But Sabbath-keeping reminds us that God is in control. 
All of us have the practice of um, giving of a percentage of our resources to the work of God in the world. Tithing is, the, is what's set in the Bible, 10%. And all of us have the invitation to fast as a means of prayer, to set aside food and drink in order to devote that time to prayer. These seven spiritual practices shape us. And you can just pick one and engage in it and see how it transforms the way in which you approach the world. There's infinite possibilities for growing in these seven practices. And each of them invite us into a greater trust and a greater awareness of God. They indeed will change us. We will hear things differently. We will see things differently. Our feet will take us places different than they did before. Our hands will take up work that is different than it was before. Through these practices, we begin to anticipate the coming of Christ. So that when Christ comes again, our ears are tuned. Our eyes recognize it. And we can stand up and say, look, our redemption is near. This time I want to invite Tom Vambenskoten to come up and share his witness of this. Good morning. In our 35 years of marriage, Lenore and I have lived in seven states and attended no less than nine Episcopal churches, from chapels to cathedrals. And a couple of years ago, when we were relocating to Danbury, we sampled almost that many between Connecticut and New York. But then we visited St. Stephen's, and we knew we had found a home for a variety of reasons. Now, hopefully our globetrotting is over and we'll be here for a good while. Along the way with those nine other parishes, I was able to volunteer in a few stewardship campaigns in a range of financial situations. I also attended a TENS convention, the Episcopal Networking, the Episcopal Networking for Stewardship in Indianapolis, which, as you can imagine, was a real eye-opener because of the way stewardship is approached across the Episcopal Church U.S., And it really dramatically is different from church to church. This past summer, Tom Carr, Jack Herr, Lori Seibert, and I visited three Episcopal churches nearby to see how they're elevating their stewardship campaigns and how in recent years they've been quite successful at doing that. And I also attended a diocesan-wide seminar on stewardship which featured the case histories of five more parishes who are witnessing strong and sustained growth in their campaigns in recent years. So in short, I've kind of compiled a respectable stewardship database, but more about that in in a minute or so. My wife and I give from gratitude. While growing up with the son of a senior warden right down the road at St. Mark's New Canaan, it was ingrained very early in my DNA the responsibility, some would say the habit, of pledging. But a full understanding of why we give was to come later on through personal experiences. When I graduated from a very fine university and entered the media business with a handful of great contacts, I thought I was pretty smart and ready to conquer the world. But of course, life threw some good challenges our way. And mine has not been maybe the luckiest of careers. The first two media positions I aspired to became severely marginalized by the time I had earned the credentials to qualify for them. 
The third I did attain and was able to enjoy it for a few years, but then it was smothered by merger mania. And quite frankly, the fourth I messed up entirely on my own. Each time I had to reinvent myself to rebound from those setbacks and to sustain my family's enjoyment of their life. And I can tell you unequivocally, I've been much luckier in marriage than I've been in my career. <laughs> now, I must be totally candid and say my ability to reinvent and rebound was less from my skills and persistence than from putting my trust in our Lord, asking him to share with me his strength, courage, wisdom, and guidance, something I have asked of him regularly for many years, and he has not failed me. Lenore and I would not be where we are today, enjoying where we are in life, slowly easing our way towards retirement, had he not answered our prayers. To me, spiritual giving is the best way I can thank him for what we enjoy, with the belief that our giving makes it possible for his work to extend well beyond our family and even our church. And as I said, we give with purpose, not out of habit, but out of gratitude for what he has helped us through. So now, if you will indulge me for a few minutes more, I would like to share with you some of the takeaways from my stewardship database in the form of a conversation between a campaign volunteer and a parishioner who is still considering their pledge. Hi, I'm Tom, and I'd like to talk to you about our stewardship campaign for 2019. Yes, Tom, thank you, but I have yet to make up my mind on what we will pledge for the next year. Oh, that's great that you're considering your pledge amount for next year, and hopefully you're also thinking about why you pledge. Well, I pledge because I'm supposed to as a member of St. Stephen's, right? Well, not exactly. We don't encourage parishioners to look at their pledges like they're paying dues to a club to cover expenses. Of course, pledges help us to properly budget operating expenses for the year, but that's only one dimension of what a pledge does for the parishioner as well as for St. Stephen's. We hope that the campaign themes will prompt consideration far beyond an obligation, that it becomes a personal expression of our faith in God and his invaluable work in our community. Your pledge is more of an enabler for expanding his impact in all our lives than simply covering an operating budget. See what I mean? Well, I must say I hadn't quite looked at it that way, but I see your point. However, there are a few things that have been happening recently at St. Stephen's that my family and I are less than excited about. So our faith in St. Stephen's is under review. Well, of course, that's quite natural. No church serves a wide variety of interests and needs equally well. But hopefully your faith remains strong, even growing in the importance of God's work in our congregation as well as the greater Ridgefield community. Okay, but shouldn't I be able to express my concerns through my pledge? That certainly is your choice. But I'm hoping you realize that our Lord has not endorsed democracy or a free market economy, but what he did proclaim to us was the need for spiritual giving, maybe even sacrificial giving, to steward his world and extend his love to those needing it more than we do. To give with gratitude for what we enjoy from the abundance of his love. Then, 
have faith that our leadership will prayerfully be guided in the best use of his generosity. So let me see. You're saying that I should trust St. Stephen's leadership and their decisions? Maybe trust more in God's guidance of their decisions. Okay, I understand your campaign goal is 10% growth and average pledge and number of pledges. Is that correct? Well, hopefully that will be at least what we do over last year, and here's why. Across the Diocese of Connecticut, St. Stephen's average pledge is very much that, average. We're right in the middle of the curve among Episcopalians in Connecticut. However, if you factor in the relative affluence of the greater Ridgefield community, we drop below average. If we strive for a growth of 10% over the next couple of years, St. Stephen's can move back above the average. Also, our participation in pledging against total membership is, again, average. And we believe St. Stephen's is anything but average. No, no, I, I get that. Our history, our legacy, all the visioning we've done over the past year, it's reasonable to strive to be above average. But I'm hearing the Episcopal Church overall is declining, so won't we be above average or we just stay where we are? <laughs> As Mark Twain once said, no, the Stewardship Planning Committee did its homework this summer and fall, and we discovered no less than eight parishes in our diocese, several who are very close by to St. Stephen's, that are healthy and growing because their members decided that was what God was asking them to do in return for his love and abundance that we enjoy. Build his work in our communities where it's as important today as ever before. But our planning committee decided the best way that we could reach our goals is to have good discussions like this one and encourage others to have them because we believe that when St. Stephen's parishioners have the information and the transparency, they will do the right thing in return. Amen. <laughs>